Today we are starting our new series, uh, A Meal with Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about A Meal with Jesus, the first thing that I think of is saying grace before uh, a meal as somebody was born and brought up in the church. And when I was preparing for this, my first thought about all of this was um, a story from when I was about uh, eight or nine years old, I guess. I went to a a small chapel and we'd had a, a new minister, which is obviously quite a big deal. And so my parents, being the wonderful good church members that they are, invited us new minister for Sunday lunch on his first or second week with us. Now, Sunday lunch at my parents' house when I was growing up was always, always a roast dinner. It didn't matter if it was 35 degrees, well, let's be honest, this was, this was South Wales. It didn't matter if it was 18 degrees outside. Um, it was still always a full roast dinner. Actually, um, a couple of years ago, I rang my parents after church on a Sunday, not really thinking about the time, and said, oh, sorry, Mama, you're probably in the middle of lunch, aren't you? Um, and she said, oh, actually, nobody was that hungry today, so we just decided to have a salad. I nearly fainted there on the spot. Got off the phone immediately, called my sister, do you know, Mama, Dad, there's a salad for lunch today? What is going on? I think my entire childhood was shaking by this one phone call. But anyway, back to the story. So we are having uh, lunch on a Sunday with our new minister. And so my, um, my mother is passing out all the plates and she passes me a plate and I pick up my knife and fork and I go to start eating something. And my sister, older, wiser, been here before, grabs my hand and slams it back down on the table. I look at her thinking, what's she doing? And then my mother passes out the last plate and she says to the new minister, there we go, uh, we're all ready now. Would you like to say grace? And I look over at my sister, I give her the nod. Are you all the experience when you've been here before you've seen this before haven't you and like the good baptist boy that i was i made as big a show as i possibly could of putting my hands together and closing my eyes and making sure that the minister knew exactly what i was doing that i knew this is what we did when it came to grace it all went silent the minister (coughs) cleared his throat and then he said cheers god and he picked up his knife and his fork and he started eating It was a revelation. My grandparents were there. I think, honestly, they must have thought, well, the church is going to close in a fortnight. You know, this is the new minister. This is the way that he says grace. This must be the end of it all. But for me, it was an absolute revelation. Um, So you'll be glad to know that this morning, this series is not going to be just um, four weeks of people from the church leadership team telling their experiences of saying grace. What we're going to do is we're going to use this book. It's called A Meal with Jesus by a guy called Todd Bardin. And each week we're going to look at a different story in the Gospels where Jesus ate a meal with somebody. And we're going to see what we can learn through these encounters. Jesus seemingly loved food. There are ten occasions just in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus sits down to have a meal with somebody. A writer that I read last week said that it looks like Jesus ate his way through the Gospels. Um, Last Tuesday, I watched England play Columbia in Hub Coffee House with a lot of you, and um, Ben, who's uh, sitting at the back there, was standing next to me, and at one point in the second half, Ben came running back from the bar and excitedly said to me, they've run out of food, and I was very confused as to why this was exciting that they'd run out of food, and I said, Ben, why do you seem that this is a good thing, and he said to me, because this means I can legitimately buy a kebab on the way home. Um, <laughs> And then proceeded for the next 10 minutes to talk more about this kebab that he was going to get than England's chances of winning this game. I put it to you that the gospel suggests that Jesus' relationship to food was very similar to Ben's relationship with his local kebab shop. Um, 
slightly more seriously, though, Jesus genuinely seemed to place an importance on sharing meals with people. He ate with people who the establishment would call sinners. He spent time over meals with his disciples, with his friends. In one of the more well-known stories in the Gospels, there's a tax collector called Zacchaeus who climbs a tree to hear Jesus speak. And when Jesus calls Zacchaeus to him, his first words are, today I'm going to be a guest at your house. Basically, come down, let's go eat. Because Jesus knows what an important symbol that is. That Jesus would be willing to sit down for a meal with a man like Zacchaeus, a tax collector who would have been hated by many in his community. But why is eating together an important thing? Why are we talking about it for the next four weeks? Well, time and time again in Christian history, you'll see what we call communion, the sharing of bread and wine together, referred to as a sacrament. A sacrament, uh, an easy definition of this, is an outward sign of an inward change. So because you've committed to living this way that Jesus lived externally, openly, there's an outward change. And so bread and wine, sharing bread and wine with people, is something that you do outwardly to show what's changed inwardly. Baptism is often referred to as a sacrament. Again, it's a public acknowledgement, an outward sign of a change that's happened internally. Um, This book that Todd Bardin has written says that he thinks that the idea of sacrament applies wider than just communion, but it can apply to all shared meals. He says the preparation, the cooking and eating of food can be a sacrament. Treating it as such has the potential to elevate the quality of our daily lives like nothing else. It can provide nourishment, but food can also provide comfort and pleasure, but it can also carry meaning. And then he goes on to say this, the time spent around the tables of our lives helps shape us into the people we become. What we eat, how we eat it, and who we eat it with speaks volumes about our beliefs, our customs, and our habits. I think this is one area where often the other kind of major religions are are doing it better than us actually at the moment. Um, In the early years of the church, they used to get together, the believers, the followers of Jesus in those early years would get together and share what were called agape meals. The idea there was that you just get together with all your friends who were also committing to living life this way and you'd share a meal together. It was not just the fact that you shared the meal, but Eleanor Crider, who's written about these meals, says it wasn't just good food but they inspired free worship and disciplined economic sharing i think maybe we've lost a bit of this actually over the last couple of thousand years in a way that maybe the other two major religions haven't a few weeks ago we had a fantastic eid celebration at oasis academy johanna the primary school that we run around the corner it's a massive muslim population there and they put on this fantastic party on a friday after school to celebrate eid and we just got to the end of ramadan and at the end of each day um the muslim people will eat a meal together and they plan these great giant community iftars where everybody comes together and shares in a meal i think we've lost a bit of that 
Judaism, I think, is similar. Um, about 15 years ago, an uncle of mine moved to Tel Aviv. And um, about a decade ago, my sister and I went to visit him. Now, he'd got to know uh, a guy from the office. And, and he was uh, single at the time. And, um, and on a Friday night, when the family gets together in Jewish culture, often to eat a meal together, they would invite him in. And so the week that we were there, it was natural that they would also invite me and my sister in. And so we went. And I remember being struck by this intergenerational meal that happened every single week. This family had an 18-year-old daughter, and on a Friday night, every single week, she would sit there and have a meal with her family. And I remember looking at her and thinking how different it is to my culture. You'd hardly be able to get an 18-year-old girl to spend one Friday night having a meal with her family, let alone every Friday night. But there she was, sitting, laughing and chatting to her grandmother, and enjoying doing so as well. We ate fantastic food together, and then they also had a 13-year-old boy, and it turned out he just started playing the guitar, and so we got on to talking about music, and at the end of the meal, suddenly somebody produces the guitar. My uncle says that I play, and so he thrusts this guitar on me, and so then I just sing a couple of songs, and then it turns out the dad of this family played a bit as well, and he sang a few songs, and my uncle used to be in a folk band a million years ago, and so he sang a few songs, and we just passed this guitar around, and people joined in with the bits that they knew, and it was a pretty special environment, actually. Ten years later, I still remember that meal really clearly. It's one of the reasons why often on a Sunday afternoon, Louise, my wife, and I will try and have a meal together with the kids. And that was just every Friday for them. That wasn't special to them. That's something I remember in detail a decade later. That's just what they did. The time spent around the tables of our lives helps shape us into the people we become. What we eat, how we eat it, and who we eat it with speaks volumes about our beliefs, our customs, and our habits. Now, I think there's a kind of a slightly awkward caveat to this over here somewhere, which is that in the UK, like it or not, this is a bit of a class issue. Now, we don't like talking about class, do we really? But in the UK, inviting somebody over for a meal is generally a bit of a middle class trait, and it isn't normally part of working class culture. My grandparents always came around for dinner on a Sunday, but my parents never invited their friends around for an evening meal, nor were they invited out to dinner parties or anything like that either. When I grew up, moved away, and started to get invited to people's houses for a meal, I had no idea that it was polite to bring something to drink with me. I had no idea that the done thing was to bring a bottle of wine with me, just because that wasn't part of the culture of where I grew up. Where I grew up, people would pop around and announce, which I think is probably another working-class, middle-class dividing line, isn't it? People would pop around and announce for a cup of tea. People did that all the time. You shared life together in that way. But no one ever came around for an evening meal. This can be an awkward conversation, can't it? Talking about class, talking about things like that. But I think it is something we need to consider as we talk about our church's role in the community. Tia Funds did a great piece of research on this about a decade ago where they said that church going in the UK is basically now just a middle class pursuit. They said that 60 something percent of the UK consider themselves working class. 38% of the church do. He said that 27% of the people in the UK have a university degree. Have a guess what that number is for regular churchgoers. 81. 81%. Like it or not, this is a class issue. 
Now, please don't think that I'm judging anyone here. I came from a working class background, but I now live in central London. I have a university degree, and I wrote uh, this part of this talk sitting here in this hipster coffee shop in Covent Garden <laughs> on Friday morning, where they charged me £3.30 for an iced long black. I think that's proof that my working class roots haven't disappeared too far away, because I nearly fainted <laughs> when they told me the price of this coffee. Um, but my question for me, for me genuinely as much as for anybody else in this room this morning is this. Who are we inviting to be around our table? Do we ever invite other people to be around our table? Do we invite people on a normal day, you know, just the odd Sunday every now and again, but when it's a special occasion, a Father's Day, a Mother's Day, Christmas, Easter, do we then keep that to our immediate family, keep ourselves to ourselves then? And beyond that, are we extending that invite to our wider community or just those that have a similar outlook to us? So we'll invite, you know, a few people. We'll invite that other lovely middle-class couple from church. You know, the ones who've got the kids the same age as us, who've got similar jobs to us. And they're also looking to upgrade to that slightly bigger flat with an extra bedroom that we are. We've got lots to talk about with those guys. And obviously it's fantastic, isn't it, to make deep relationships with the people who we go to church with. I'm really not knocking that. That genuinely is an important part of what we need to do here on a Sunday morning. But are we up for extending the invite any wider than that? How do we show generosity through our meals? What do my mealtimes say about me? Verity read to us earlier the story from the Gospel of John. The, um, the verses that she read come directly after Jesus has fed the 5,000. It's a pretty commonly known story, but in case anyone hasn't heard it, Jesus is on a hillside next to the Sea of Galilee, and crowds of people are following him to hear what he has to say. The disciples are worried that all these people have come with him, and they don't have any food. So they speak to Jesus about this. And somebody says, I've got five loaves and two fish. Jesus blesses the, the loaves and the fish. And then miraculously, suddenly there's food for everybody. There's a load of people there. But as you would imagine, miraculous feeding of thousands of people isn't exactly the kind of thing that disperses the crowds. And so more and more people come. Eventually, Jesus takes himself off in a boat across to the other side of the lake. But eventually the crowd realize and they follow him. They find Jesus on the other side of the lake, and that's where our reading began. Jesus says to them, look, you followed me because I gave you bread, but I tell you, don't work for food for your stomachs, but work for food that lasts. Yesterday I gave you physical bread, which sustained you overnight, but I am the bread of life. Follow me, and you will know true fulfillment. Two things about these verses. Firstly, a common question after hearing all this is, why does Jesus talk about bread? Why does he have to talk in metaphor all the time? Why can't he just be straightforward and tell us what he actually thinks? Well, one reason for this is that the Hebrew language grew in a very literal way. It grew out of people who wandered in the desert. It developed as people walked around seeing physical things, doing physical things. And so it was natural that they would use these physical things to explain what was actually going on. So they used physical examples to get their point across. So people use symbolism a lot. When Jesus says he's the bread of life, he's using something every day to point to a greater truth. Everybody knew about bread. It was a straightforward thing. It was critical 
to physical life in those days. Without bread, people could literally starve. Jesus was trying to say that following him was critical to spiritual life. Secondly, the other thing that's interesting is that Jesus talks about himself as the living bread. I read this from an author called Caroline Lewis. Jesus says he is the living bread. Do you catch that? The key word here is living, not dying. The same word will be used to describe the Father later in this passage, just as the living Father sent me. What difference does this make? Jesus as the bread of life is connected to the living Jesus, not to the dying Jesus. Jesus is the living bread. This isn't about heaven and hell. This isn't about an afterlife. It's not about what happens when you die. Jesus is the living bread. This is about how we treat our community here and now, today and every day. This story, all of what we've talked about so far this morning, it's about how we treat our community now. There's this quote which um, I've come across quite a lot recently. It's been pretty well used. I couldn't find out who originally wrote it, but it says this. If you are more fortunate than others, it's better to build a longer table than a taller fence. It's um, probably become a bit more popular recently, I think, because the USA has a president who isn't only refusing to metaphorically extend the table to the less fortunate, but literally wants to build an actual fence. Um, But I think there's a danger here in this. And I think the danger is that we look over the other side of the Atlantic at what's going on in the USA and we pass judgment, don't we? We sit here and we say, I can't believe they are doing that. I can't believe they have got it so wrong. But the thing is that by doing that, sometimes we miss the plank of wood in our own country's eye, I think. Because it isn't just the USA who need to build a longer table. Um, there's been a lot of talk in the press recently um, about uh, people who've tried to come into the country and then have had their kids taken away from them while they've been detained. And there's a charity called the Bail for Immigrant Detainees. They're a team of legal professionals who try to get bail for parents who have been separated from their children while in immigration detention. And here's the thing, that's in the UK. They're based in London, not that far from here. They usually handle 170 cases per year in the UK, in London. And this year, they've already represented 155 families. We have Yarlswood Immigration Removal Centre, where 400 people are being detained. They're mainly women. And a few months ago, they went on protest, on hunger strike, because of the conditions that they've been kept in. They're forced to work, for which they get one pound an hour. One woman who was interviewed said that she'd lived in the UK for 30 years. She had four kids, all of whom had been born in this country. And she'd been detained there for seven months, pending removal to Nigeria, a place where she had no family, no friends, and absolutely no links. Yarlswood is 60 miles away from here. We've also had the absolute scandal of Windrush, where British citizens, brought here by our government, were separated from their families after decades of contributing to our society and forced to leave the country. We've changed our immigration laws so that we're deporting people who earn less than £35,000 a year. How is any of this building a longer table? 
Back to John chapter 6. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Jesus built a longer table. And Jesus calls us to do the same. Jesus calls us to feed the hungry, to give water to the thirsty. He calls us to build a longer table. So as we finish this morning, what are we going to do about it? I think there are obviously the big things. You could get involved with some campaigning. You could check out bail for immigrant detainees. Or you could volunteer with us for Harvest for Hope, the project that we currently run that we're going to house a Syrian refugee family. But this morning, I think I'd like us to focus on a smaller task that I think every one of us can engage in. We can build our own longer table. To start with, I really don't think we can overstate the importance of those 10 minutes after a church service ends. I'm talking to myself as much as anyone else again here, but we really need to make the effort to seek out the new people in our community at the end of a service. It's so easy, isn't it, just to get back into our normal friendship groups and talk to our normal friends, and especially when our lives are busy, I don't really get to see them during the week, and so Sunday morning is the time that I catch up, and so actually all I do is I speak to the same people, and it's so important that we also spend some of that time looking out for the new people and building community. When Louise and I first came to this church many moons ago, we knew a guy called Matt. Matt had gone to our church in Swansea, and he'd moved up to London a few years before we did, and he came to this church, and that was how we came. And so for the first couple of months, we just spoke to Matt. We would come in, we'd sit next to Matt, we would then get to the end of the service, we'd stay for a coffee, we'd have a coffee, I'd talk to Matt, and then we'd go home. And if he wasn't there, we'd just talk to each other. Every week we forced ourselves to stick around for the tea and coffee at the end. And then generally what would happen is we would drink the coffee as quickly as we could, burning our throats to get to the end of it, whilst chatting to each other. And then we'd go. And many of you in this room know me. I will talk to anyone about anything at length, probably too long. And so if I find it awkward, I'm pretty sure that I can't be the only one. The second thing to say about that is there were two of us. We had each other to talk to. It's so much more difficult, isn't it, when you come in on your own? What do you do then? We need to look out for those in our community. So that's one practical thing that we can all do this morning. But I think it's wider, obviously, isn't it, than just the end of church services and what we do here on a Sunday morning. Last week, we held a community meeting here. I'm sure that most of you will know by now that the police station just down the road is about to be sold off. And so we would like to buy it to stop it becoming another expensive hotel or posh flats that the community can't afford. So we would like to take over responsibility for this and turn it into a community center. And so what we did is we got a load of people into the coffee shop. We had about 80 local people there, which is incredible actually for a community meeting for anyone who has engaged in community work before will know that's an incredible number and what happened was that we split people into groups and I led a breakout session which was aimed at people in their 30s and 40s or at least aimed at people who wanted to have some idea about what we could provide for people in their 30s and 40s and while I was doing that session a guy said to me 
could there be something about getting to know people? And I said, explain. He said, well, I moved to London a few months ago, and I just don't have any friends. I just don't know how to get to know people in London. And he's right, isn't he? London can be a tough place to get to know people. I know that this isn't the, this isn't the case for everybody, but I read some research recently which said that London is the loneliest city in the world. The percentage of Londoners who say that they feel lonely is higher than any other city in the UK, and it's higher than any of the 20 comparable cities around the world. Obviously, it isn't the case for everybody, but the population can be transient, can't it? People coming and going, getting new jobs, moving house. It's difficult to get to know people in any depth. Most people, or lots of people at least, myself included, moved here as an adult. My family is back in South Wales, so I don't have the family around the corner, which can also help with loneliness. So, what does this mean? I think what it means is there are a lot of people in this city, in this church, in our workplaces, on our streets, who need someone to extend their table to include them. So just as I finish, this morning, this week, let's choose to build that longer table. That might mean chatting to somebody that we don't know after the service. It might mean inviting somebody around for a meal. It might mean that when you go to work and you always go out for a meal with your mates that you invite the new guy along as well. It might mean extending that party invite a little wider than the normal circle. Back to the book to end. Todd Bardin says, Food brings us together in spiritual fellowship. Community is built around the table when we eat a meal together we share something in common relationships are more easily built around the table and when jesus is involved the table is always always being made longer let's go and do the same